God is good. Amen. I ask you to take your Bible as we turn to the book of 2 Peter. When you get to the book of 2 Peter, go to chapter 2. Go to chapter 2, go to verse 3. If you want to grab that pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 1,396 in the pew Bible. 1396. In a moment, we will stand and read from the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. I believe most everyone understands what it means to make a reservation. The word reservation defined means to arrange to have something held for one's use. Also, it's called a promise or a guarantee or a record of engagement. You know, we have to reserve tables sometimes at nice restaurants. We have to reserve hotel rooms before we go. We at times have reserved seats at sporting events or at um, concerts and, and things like that. A reservation gives someone an assurance that what they have planned for will be waiting for them at the appropriate time. Now, I don't know about you, but I recall a time before reservations. As a young boy, we would all pile into the car, and I was raised in Johnson City. We would all pile into the car, and it was dark. It was probably late at night, and there were three of us kids, and my mom and dad, we'd get in the car, and we were going to go to the beach, and we would drive from Johnson City to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. That was the place we always went. And we would leave late at night. We would drive all through the night, and us kids, because there weren't any laws or rules or anything back, one of us sleeping in the window, one of us sleeping in the seat, one of us sleeping in the floor. Those were the good old days, right? And we would go to the beach, and we would wake up, and we would get to the beach, and it would be morning. And it's at that time my mom and my dad would begin cruising up and down the strip at Myrtle Beach looking for a place to stay, looking for signs that go vacancy, vacancy, vacancy. And what we were finding most of the time is no vacancy, no vacancy, we would go to the beach literally just and find where we were going to stay. Now, we always found a place to stay. Now, I don't remember any of those places, and it's probably good, because sometimes when you have to end up staying wherever you can, you end up staying in some very unique places, but they had all the things we needed, access to the beach, a place to lay our head, and a pool. So it was okay. But that would never happen today. Never do I head out on vacation without a reserved place to stay. And when you look at the beach, wherever beach you go to, at all these new buildings that have been built, there is no sign that says vacancy or no vacancy on anything that's built these days. Because even they go, nobody comes to the beach without a reservation. Reservations are intended to help us feel good about what lies ahead of us in the future. Let's stand together and read from the book of 2 Peter. I'm going to read from chapter 2. I'm going to pick up in verse 3. Verse 3 is our crossover verse. We sort of touched on it a little bit last week. We're going to launch from it this week in through verse 9. So let's read 2 Peter chapter 2, picking up in verse 3. It says, By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction 
does not slumber. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood of the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Thank you. You may be seated. Keep your scripture open as we walk through and talk about what God has for us. You know, we're picking up where we left off last week. Last week, we discussed the reality of false teachers. We discussed their tactics. We discussed their impacts. Verse 3 in today, our crossover verse says, by covetousness, they will exploit you. Church, that tells us that they are not motivated by the truth. They are motivated by their own personal agenda and their own personal desires. These people intentionally present alternatives to the truth. Last week we said, quite frankly, church, they lie. They exploit. We talked last week through questioning God's word through denying God's word, and then distorting God's word. Just like their father, Satan, did in the Garden of Eden and continues to do today. John 10.10 is a good summary of this comparison. John 10.10 says, The thief does not come but to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come, Jesus says, that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Last week I mentioned that a false teacher will deny more than they will ever affirm. You'll recall that. They deny the inspiration of Scripture, the sinfulness of man, the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. They deny salvation by faith alone, the reality of an eternal judgment. And in the end, they will always deny the deity of Jesus. They will say that Jesus was not the Son of God. And what we saw last week is that through all of these strategies, many people will be drawn away from Christ. And there's two kinds of people. It's those that know Christ that become ineffective because they begin believing the lie and they stop living for Christ. Or there are those that do not know Christ who are then pushed further and further and further away. And I've come to a point of understanding, probably defining false teaching in my life, to a higher degree now, or maybe a, a simpler definition. Anything that does not uphold the truth of God's word and draw people to Jesus is false teaching. Church, that's what we must stand for. The word of God and the, the Savior, Jesus Christ, as led by the Holy Spirit coming together. And if it's not affirming that, then it is false teaching. I received a call this week from someone representing a young family. And this young family had suffered the loss of a young child. And it was presented to me, I was asked if I would be willing 
to baptize said deceased child prior to the service. And I spoke to the person who called me, and I said, I can't do that. But I would love to speak to this family, if they will allow me, to be able to show them biblically why that is not a worry they should have. You see, in this world, they had been taught, this family had been taught that there is a place where babies who die before they're baptized go. And it's called limbo. And I'm going, I've never heard of that. And then I spent some time this week studying it. It's out there. Limbo is a place specifically for children that have been born but die before they're baptized as infants. And it's not a temporary place. In the teaching that these people hold, it is a permanent residence for these children. Church, can I just tell you after studying that and after having that phone call how that made me feel? Angry. Angry. Because it's not enough that this family has to suffer the loss of a child. Now they are faced with this lie about where their child will spend eternity. It's awful. It makes me angry at sin. It makes me angry at false teaching. And then I stopped. And ever since I've been studying this, and I don't know about you, you know, false teaching is everywhere. When you define it as you're, if you are not holding true to the word of God and allowing Jesus to help people be drawn to Jesus for their salvation. Anything that pushes people away is false teaching. It's everywhere, church. And it bothers me. And when I read this scripture, it bothers me. In today's scripture, you see, in my mind, I'm going, God, Please intervene. Do something. God, people who espouse these kinds of teachings who are sending people in pathways that they may never find their way back to God. Lord, do something. Intervene, God, please. And then I read this scripture, and I see that God does intervene. God has intervened. God does intervene, and God has promised to, in days forward, intervene. Look at verse 3. For a long time, their judgment, that's the judgment of the false teachers, has not been idle. Verse 3, their destruction does not slumber. You know what that tells me is that our sovereign God who knows all things, 
who sees all things, sees this and will judge all things. How do we know? Well, I'd like to, in my mind, this is how it worked. You know, I started up here and I, and I centered this up and you're going, Jeff, you got a crazy mind if that bothered you. It actually bothers me more now because you fixed it. But let me get you into the mind of Jeff and how I looked at this scripture. I want to create these brackets, and then I want to talk about what happens in between. Okay, so look at with me at, at verse 4. The beginning of verse 4, it says, For if God did not spare. You see that? For if God did not spare. I think the punctuational term is called an ellipsis. That's where I, how I write. It's called dot, dot, dot which means you're skipping something in between, and then you're adding something to the end. Look at the end of this bracket for me. Go to verse 9 that we read, the first part of verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver. For if God did not spare, then God knows how to deliver. And what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes is setting up the table for this side of the bracket, for if God did not spare, and then we're going to spend a minute talking about then the Lord knows how to deliver. Everybody get where we're going, the bracket right here? Okay. For if God did not spare, look at verse 4, did not spare the angels who sinned, but delivered them to hell. Now, church, we may wish to understand more about this. Scripture speaks to, in couple of three places about a heavenly rebellion that happened in a time best I can figure out would be pre in the beginning. So it's before God said in the beginning this happened. You see, God always has been. And so it's possible for many, many things. And the reality is to happen before we were brought on the scene in Genesis 1-1. And God dealt with this. And so let me read with you. You can write these scriptures down. I've got them looked up. Got them looked up. I know there was something grammatically wrong about that. I have looked them up before I came up here. But Ezekiel chapter 28, let me read verses 11. No, I'm write this down first. Isaiah chapter 14. I want to read them in the right order. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15 says this. Isaiah 14, 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. That alludes to there was a rebellion, a conversation. Allow me to read from Ezekiel chapter 28, just giving us some information. Verses 11 to 19, Ezekiel 28, picking up in verse 11, says this, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, the topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. 
The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. Verse 16, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before the kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst, and it devoured you, and I turned you into ashes upon the earth in sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples were astonished at you, and you became a horror and shall be no more forever. It says that God did not spare the angels. Revelation chapter 12, verse 4 tells us that this likely included about one-third of the angels. Now, I can't teach you or tell you much more about this. I've given you what Scripture gives us about that. But, you know, we really don't have to understand the exact details of these mysterious Scriptures to understand the major point. God judges rebellion and will not spare those who reject his will. It's quiet, isn't it? Church, if God will judge the angels that in many respects are higher than men, then he will certainly judge man as well. Open parentheses. For if God did not spare, verse 5, the ancient world, bringing the flood on the ungodly. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3 tells us that God waited 120 years. He told Noah what was going to happen. And he instructed Noah in what to do to prepare for it. But you'll notice these verses we read today talked about Noah continuing to share righteousness. For 120 years, Noah not only built an ark at the instructions of God, but he preached God's righteousness. And no one, responded, save Noah and his wife, his three sons, and their three daughters. And I was reminded as I was reading Scripture how utterly amazing it is that these three sons found these three wives. Think about it for a second. They came from non-believing homes. And you're going... Yeah, I guess they did. God found them. Romans 1.18 and following tells us about the world in that day, and I would like to read what the world looked like. Romans 1, just write this scripture down, and I'll read it for you. 1.18 through 25 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Because what might be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, the world, are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. The flood was God's judgment on ungodly man, except for eight righteous people. For God did not spare the angels. For God did not spare the world. Look at verse 6. For God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah when he turned them into ash, condemning them to destruction. Scripture teaches us, as we read in verse 6, making them an example. Genesis chapter 13 shows God's opinion of these people. Quote, they were wicked sinners before the Lord exceedingly. You can go and read more about Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 18 and Genesis chapter 19. Tell of their destruction. And all were destroyed except for Lot and his daughters, whom Peter tells us were considered righteous, having expressed, expressed faith in God. And it says that God did this as an example to those who would live ungodly afterward, which means that God did not spare the angels. God did not spare the world during the flood. God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah. And he left it as an example because he knew that evil would continue to happen in the days ahead. Now, note these three examples. Maybe I'm getting a little too clever in my own mind, but there's the cosmic level, supernatural level, judge for their pride and their arrogance. Then there's the worldwide level for apathy and obedience. And then there was the city level for their sensuality and their wickedness. All three of these examples seem to describe the methods of Satan, stealing, killing, and destroying. They also represent, as we've talked about, the methods of false teachers. But look at verse 4. God has reserved them for judgment. See the word reserved? That day is coming. Look at verse 9. The Lord knows how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Church, the Lord will judge. It has been reserved by him for the unjust. Notice how God's judgment is beginning to tighten up, though, from cosmic to world to city. And then he said they're going to be an example to the unjust, those that are ungodly in the future. It's getting down to the individual level. Each will be judged. I told you I had a bracket. For if God did not spare, dot, dot, dot. Verse 9 says, then the Lord knows how to deliver. Look at verse 9 very closely. It says, 
Let me get there. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly. It's important that we understand this. Note, Noah and his family were seen as godly and righteous by God, and he delivered them. Note, Lot was seen as righteous by God and was delivered. Now, I did my own little study. You know, Lot's not always seen as righteous. Some of his decisions and his choices were made, but Peter gives us this insight that he was under, Lot was under a lot of pressure because of the evil that was around him. And do you know that what you keep around you has an impact on how you live? Church, we need to watch this. Lot, he made decisions that put himself in vulnerable places, and then he then acted in inconsistent ways. But what I see here is that Noah was righteous, preaching for 120 years, and God saved him. And Lot, through his relationship with the Lord, believed, and he was righteous, even though his decisions weren't always great. And I'm thankful because I probably look a whole lot more like Lot than I do Noah in the world. But God delivered them. God is the only one who knows the state of a man's heart of faith. And God will never allow the righteous, the godly, to be judged. You see, when Jesus died on the cross and you if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, ask Jesus into your life. Remember, we talked about three weeks ago, you were legal standing, justified before God, paid in full. You're good. Holy, righteous, and perfect before God because of and only because of the blood of Jesus. God knows how to deliver his people, and God knows how to judge. But look at verse 9. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly, and then it goes on, out of temptations. Now, in the beginning, when I wrote my notes here, it meant one thing to me, and then God has continued while it's in the crock pot, while my life has continued to be lived, and even this morning, informing me a little bit more about what he wants it to mean to me. But it says, out of temptations. Church, let me just clarify a couple of things. Temptation is not a sin. Now, hear me through. Scripture teaches that God will not tempt us, nor is God tempted. That's the book of James. We have defined in sermons and teachings prior that a temptation is an opportunity for you to be drawn away from God. And God says in his word right now, I know how to deliver you from temptation, which means... Church member, you do not have to fail. We live in a world that failure is everywhere. You do not have to fail. You can allow God to deliver you. He says that he will. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Let me just read this to you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you be, to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Did you notice God's way of helping you, delivering you in temptation is not to make you strong, it's to make you aware that he's provided a way out. You know what's interesting, though? You have to recognize a temptation before you can resist it. 
If you start reading the wrong things, being taught the wrong things, believing the wrong things, then you will allow things to stay in your life that God would have you push out. And so we need to resist that. God says, and I'll give you a way of escape. That temptation that you're dealing with right now, and I'll tell you, your pastor faces temptation. I have had to come to the point in my life, and I pray that God will continue, is I have to recognize, is what I'm feeling from God? The Holy Spirit will allow you to know which one it's coming from. And if it's not from God, you need to just set it aside, resist it, and move on. But here's where that temptation led me. Did I tell you a few minutes ago, once I heard that story and I realized this family was hurting such that they were going to struggle for a long, long time, and it made me angry how false teaching had created problems for these people. God reminded me, he said, Jeff, I can deliver you from your feelings. You see, if my reaction to false teaching is God, get them. That's not a godly reaction. God would not have me do that. You know what God would have me do? He would have me love. He would have me pray for them. But Romans 12, 19 would say, he would have me leave room for him. Because God said, vengeance is mine. You see, this scripture in 2 Peter chapter 2 says, God says, I know how. I know how to judge. I know how to reserve them. I know how to take care of this. What God is telling me is, Jeff, this is not your fight. Any anger I feel is another opportunity for Satan to cause me to become less godly. And church, as hard as it is, we must trust God. He's the one who said he could take care of it all. But another thing hit me. It said that he has reserved for them the unjust, verse 4. He has reserved for them, verse 9, which means we know that there is a judgment that God has promised that he will take care of that is set aside for them and will happen at an appropriate day and time. But look at what this says here. Verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Not only does God promise to help you, and God promised to take care of it if you will trust him. But deliver is not a reservation. And you're going, Jeff, I understand that. Let me make sure you do how I... Reservation is something that's going to happen one day. Many of you have your condos reserved at the beach for a week soon. Again, jealous. But you know it's coming. But when God promises to deliver, best I can read and study, that is an immediate action. So God is reserving for the unjust a judgment. But for the godly, God is saying, I am right here, right now, ready to 
deliver you. Isn't that awesome? God doesn't wait. Now, we're going to talk more in 2 Peter because I'm working really, really hard not to preach 2 Peter chapter 3 while we're in 2 Peter chapter 2. We'll get there. But God is saying, I will deliver. I will act now for the godly, and I am reserving to act one day on the unjust. And I think that's a pretty important thing. You see, when we contrast the false teachers and the children of God, I found in Scripture, do you know I also have a reservation? Now, if your book is open, if your Bible is open to 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, just open it up and flip back two pages and go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Not only has God promised to reserve for judgment the ungodly, not only has God promised to deliver you in the moment that you call upon him, 1 Peter chapter 1, let me read verses 3 through 5. I want you to turn there because this is an important thing for you to hold on to. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a loving no, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. Catch this, and I know I'm in the New King James, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So not only is God promising to reserve for judgment the ungodly, not only is he promising to bring deliverance immediately to the godly, those seeking him, he has set aside a future reservation in heaven for the godly for an eternity. And based upon that church, let me tell you how Jeff had to be reminded in Scripture about how he feels at times. Church, we cannot grow weary of doing good. And sometimes in this world, we can just get tired. And Scripture, thankfully, says, don't do it. Don't get tired. Church, not only must we not grow weary of doing good, we must stay faithful. Seeking God first. Being in the Word. Being obedient. Trusting and following the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because if you go back to first or 2 Peter chapter 1, that's how we become all that God wants us to be in the beginning, doing those things. We must recognize that the judgment of false teachers is not our responsibility. Aren't you glad? For starters, if it were my responsibility, I'd probably do a terrible job of it. And if I acted out on it, there's no way God could be glorified in it. So even in God taking this responsibility, it's not that you can't do it. He just knows he can do it better, and you'll be better if he's the one who does it. Not only must we, not, must we recognize that the judgment of false teachers is not our responsibility, we must recognize that our responsibility is to be 
truth tellers. Simply telling the truth. That's the gospel. Scripture says that God will deliver us if we stay faithful and we wait upon his time. We must also trust that God has a purpose for this reservation time of judgment being at a time in the future, not in the moment as many times I or you might desire. And we must know that judgment is certain for all who do not know Jesus. And we need to take that last statement to heart. People who do not know Jesus as their Savior, whether they be lazy, disagreement, or openly false teachers, when they die, they will be separated from God forever. Church, that's why we must be not growing weary of doing good. That's why we must be truth tellers. That's why we must not busy ourselves on things that's God's responsibility, and we must busy ourselves with the responsibilities God has given us, and that is to share the love and the truth of the gospel to all people that we come in contact with. I was reminded of a very powerful tool this morning. It's called the invite. I met someone this morning. They're in the room. They know I'm talking about them, but I'm not talking about who they are. I met them. I said, I'm so glad that you're here. What brings you here today? They said, these people invited me. I said, what a novel concept. He said, well, it was just good to be invited. How awesome is that? Do you know one of the things I want to encourage you to do this week? Walk out in this world full of people not knowing the truth. Ask the Holy Spirit to lead and guide you and to put somebody in your pathway, and I want you to try this novel, novel thing. Just invite them. Just invite them. Well, what if they don't come? It's not about them. It's about you being a truth teller. What if they do come? Well, hallelujah, sit with them. Okay? Do I have to buy them lunch? Yeah. But I believe if you go back on the recorded word of our teachings on Sundays and Wednesday, I believe I have stated to you, church, as a whole, Angela, you can tell me if I've ever said this before. She's got everything written down over here. But I believe I told you that if you invite somebody and they come with you and you take them to lunch, if you give me the receipt, I'll reimburse you. I think I've said it. Anybody remember me saying that before? Well, I just said it again then. I believe I said it before. Maybe it was just an ill thought. I shouldn't have said it right then. But church, I want you to take a novel approach this week. Invite. 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 We need to be truth tellers. And it is real easy to get wrapped up and into being ineffective in this world if you get caught up in the stuff that God doesn't want you to get caught up in. Amen?